Hello, and welcome to some Derbs Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about The Outer Worlds. Before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, we talk about games. And The Outer Worlds is the most recent release by Obsidian Studios. Now, Obsidian has been bought by Microsoft, um, so they're not quite like an indie game company anymore. But at the time, you know, like they were, essentially. Um, and, uh, and so the, the Outer Worlds has been a pretty fascinating game to play through. I have a couple of hours in it. Uh, Mango also has a couple of hours in it. Neither of us have finished the game or even like got super deep, you know, kind of like into it or its story. I have a good concept for like kind of what's going on, but, um, you know, uh, it isn't, uh, like neither of us are super experts in, uh, in the Outer Worlds, but it also kind of represents simultaneously an interesting, movement uh from a story perspective and like a narrative perspective in my eyes at the same time that it represents an interesting kind of industry development so that's what we're here to talk about and we're here to talk about the outer worlds uh for everybody's spoiler understanding i have played through the game up until reaching the groundbreaker um i've had a bunch of conversations there but i haven't done any of the questing kind of sort of past that which is basically you know the very first sort of area that you're given which is edgewater uh i did all of that sort of stuff and then i moved on to the groundbreaker mango how far did you get into the game i basically finished the groundbreaker at least all the stuff that um, you can do while you're there, and uh, I also, like, kind of, there's a little bit of options. I also visited the professor's uh, ship. Um, oh, I actually haven't visited the professor's yeah. ship. I just went straight to the Groundbreaker. Yeah, so uh, I'll avoid talking about that, but, uh, yeah. Okay, so neither of us are really deep in the game. No. Um, but, uh, uh, but I did, uh, like, honestly, the first couple of minutes I felt like I was like, oh, I'm immediately, I immediately want to talk about some of the things on the podcast. Um, because I was really surprised at how high fidelity this felt from Obsidian, which is kind of like, you know, like, I, it's tough to call them like an indie company in a way. Cause like, they don't look a lot like they, they've made AAA games before, and they've been partnered with Paradox for a while, making the Paradox CRPG titles like Tyranny and um, Pillars of Eternity. Um, and uh, and then they got bought by Microsoft earlier this year, which I feel like kind of is their... them. This is them sort of transitioning up into the, into the big leagues. But, like, The Outer Worlds is a very... Um, if it had come out from Bethesda or from somebody, you know, like in the Take Two mantle, I would never have been surprised because it absolutely sort of like feels in that sort of uh, like vein of of other kinds of games. Do you feel? Did you did you get that same sort of feeling from it? Um, I I feel like it's so it kind of in, from a different perspective, right? Like this this is the first game to me that felt like a Bethesda style open world game. Um that wasn't by Bethesda. Um, and I thought that was like super impressive. They nailed it kind of like that, that, that feeling of exploration and whatever. Um, even though it is a significantly smaller game space. Um, but, uh, kind of like that, that, that the feeling you get when you're playing like oblivion or, or Skyrim, I think was done really well. And, uh, it's a lot less buggy than your typical Bethesda game. So that was like, that, that was like kind of my, my overwhelming impression was like, this is like, you know, like a Fallout game with, like, slight tonal differences, but without, like, the weird Bethesda jank. Um, yeah, and I also, I did get the sense um, in certain 
spots um, that the the like uh, you, uh, I could you could sort of see the seams a little bit in certain aspects of the game, right? Like, and so it's not it's definitely not like perfect. Um, and I would I would offer like some pieces of criticism or whatever. But yeah, I would definitely say that my my experience playing the Outer Worlds is much better than my experience playing AAA open world games, you know, kind of like across the board, right? Like, I mean, I've been pretty friendly to some of those games on this podcast just because, you know, a lot of the times there will be like a week one, this is like the Anthem story, right? Like there was a week one bug fix patch. I had a bunch of problems with bugs, but the week one bug fix patch basically solved all of them, right? And that's a shitty, you know, like that's a shitty thing that the Outer Worlds didn't even have to do, right? Um, it just basically worked right out of the gate, it felt like. Um, I wasn't seeing anything online or, uh, kind of around the horn from people who were talking about sort of, like, bucky interactions. Part of me thinks that it is because it is a, it is a noticeably, like, smaller, more kind of, like, compact game. It's interesting because there's still a lot of stuff to do, and it still feels like, do you know what I mean? Like, it still feels like the world is very populated, but I think what really happened is they just scrunched the distance between things, right? Like, there's a hill. You walk one side of the hill. Here's a bunch of bad guys. You walk the other side of the hill. Here's a bunch of monsters, right? Normally, those encounters would have been kind of, like, spread out by just, like, the nature of a big, expansive, open, you know, like, open world. Um, but here, that wasn't the case. Here, those things were kind of, like, right next to each other, which I think was kind of a, you know, it's like a little bit of a hack, in a way, if you're making one of these uh, one of these open world games to, to fill it full of things to do and things going on without necessarily, you know, needing to uh, make the biggest, the, the biggest overworld ever. I think part of it, too, is that, like, a lot of, like, that empty space is taken up by kind of the planet transition, right? Like, I think there's, like, similar density to, say, like, a town in Skyrim uh, to a lot of these areas. Um, but, like, you instead of, like, having to walk between towns or whatever, you kind of fly between them. Like, like you fly between the Groundbreaker and, uh, and, uh, and, and like, the, the different planets. Um, and so I think that that covers some of it. I also think part of it is that, like... There's, like, less of kind of, like, the weird random little in-between things, um, which I think I think goes to your point. But, like, whereas, like, you know, you'd walk for a while and you'd have to, you'd have space to cover in, like, say, Fallout. You'd also have, like, a shed with some, like, doohickeys in it, which you just kind of don't have in this game. Um, also, like, there's less, like, one of the things that the, that the Bethesda games do is there's, like, a thousand billion things that you can pick up and manipulate that you you know, lots of them you never end up using, and that's just kind of omitted from this game. Um, but, like, part of that is, like, you know, you're hunting through, like, piles of junk for, like, components for a weapon in uh, in Fallout or, like, uh, stuff to melt down into metal in Skyrim um, or pieces of metal in Skyrim, which is not, like, a thing you're doing as much in this game. Everything you pick up is kind of, like, fit for purpose. So... Yeah, you you pick up trash, and it is just weapon parts, right? You know, you don't have to get glue and duct tape and whatever else to build your weapon. You just build it out of weapon parts um, or you repair it with weapon parts. I think that's pretty kind of like a clever streamline, though. I do sort of like wonder, like, how much of the um, 
item bloat, I would say, is part of the the kind of like collectathon feedback loop. You know, like that's that's something that I that I've always felt like, even though these RPGs have been grouped together a lot, right? Like the Mass Effects, um, and for instance, uh, the Fallout's, right? They don't share that same that same sort of like exploration loop which which kind of keeps them sort of separate and here there is that exploration loop but you don't have the same sort of like i need item parts for my items um so i kind of like wonder a little bit about the difference there i think i think there's like a, a fair amount of separation there just because um like everything you pick up in in outer worlds is functional there's, there's some junk that you just sell but like even that's got like a purpose of being sold for money um and like there's an like there's enough of it that like you still kind of get that like oh I gotta pick up this stuff type of deal but like not so much like it's not like like in say Fallout where like half the stuff you're never gonna use at all um, but like there, there's still there's still enough of it and still like low impact enough I guess is what I'm what I want to say right like even some of like the lower level mods aren't like worth a ton but like. You know, you can pick up like 72 different types of food and has various effects. And there's not really a lot of consequence to not having, but you can kind of throw them in your inhaler and use them automatically. Um, and so like they all, it's, it's all kind of like, yeah, like, you know, there's a, there's a reason to pick this stuff up. Um, um, but it's also not so, like, they're not so meaningful that like picking up 10,000 of a thing means that you've kind of broken your character in a way. Um, so I, I think, I think they've struck a kind of unique balance there, but like the things you pick up are all kind of like needed in some aspect right like the like the food and whatever like i don't know what difficulty you're playing on i'm playing on hard like you need to puff on your inhaler a fair amount so like throwing those buffs in there is is useful um and like yeah i'm not using a ton of the the like i'm picking up a lot of redundant outfits like you wouldn't say um fallout but like the ability to just kind of like deconstruct things in your inventory and have like repair parts i think really uh really helps uh with that or like sell them off for extra cash so like yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, it reminds me a lot of Diablo 3, where you're doing a lot of this, right? Like, you're looting a lot of things, but then you're going to the guy and just, like, hitting, like, mass disenchant, like, the blacksmith or whatever. Yeah, um, but it's it, it's not so, like, the things aren't so valuable that, like, you're making runs back to town every time you're you're, you're full up on weight. Like, you're, you, 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 like, you know, you kind of adventure with what you have, and then when you're when you're ready to go back to town, you're about there right and you, you you're a little bit selective but not super selective if that makes sense i do sort of wonder i mean like how has your encumbrance been um it's been like it feels like it's been about right like i get near the top of it sometimes but like not like it's not so oppressive like and i have to leave some stuff behind but it's not so oppressive that i ever feel like i can't make room if i need to for something interesting okay that might be a little bit yeah the very first perk i ever took was like the you could fast travel while encumbered perk and so um i am feeling that like diablo thing a little bit where i'm like zipping back and forth but uh i don't know that's never really been like a, a gigantic issue also i feel like i have a lot of room in my inventory right like it takes a lot to get me encumbered so i've never really felt like like a lot of the times um it'll be easy for me to just like complete a whole wing of whatever my, my quest is and then return to town and sell stuff as normal without right like you know uh getting getting hosed for it in a way you know what i mean yeah no absolutely but i also think that like the stores are dense enough also i have 
I guess so, – so this is interesting because this is like alternate play styles, right? Like you jump back and forth to town, but like I can sell to vending machines because my, my hacking is high enough. And so I've got oh, more okay. opportunities yeah, to I don't sell. Have that one. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But that's really interesting, right? Like you're building out kind of like different ways to play the game in like a, a, a more meta way even than – than like you normally think about it, right? Like you normally don't think about that as like a classic different play style thing, but like it is of kind of affecting the way we're interacting with the game, right? Like you're 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 kind of like traveling a bunch, and I'm I'm just kind of like dealing with the with the the ability to to, to sell things to, to these mechanical vendors. Which yeah, is... and and it might sound like a quality of life sort of thing. Like I mean, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who's like, oh, like the first thing you took was it like a combat ability or whatever. Well, so part of this is that I'm running a very stealth heavy build. Um, and doing as much stealth as I possibly can. So I don't really feel like I need any of the combat perks, like 50 base health or anything along those sorts just, of lines, right? There's also not a um, lot of combat-based perks, really, yeah. right? Like the health, yeah, the three I perks I've taken so far are walk speed, run speed, and fast travel while encumbered. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've taken walk speed, run speed, um what else oh and then like the two the two uh slow time perks um which i think is actually an interesting thing to talk about like have, have you played a lot around with the uh with the with the the, the paused like the basically the the vat spiritual successor to be honest kind of... not real i mean so here here's how most of my things go right like this is a very typical sort of like stealth game experience as far as i'm concerned where it's like i case you know like i walk around i try and get a sense for where the guards are what their pathing is what guards can i then pick off like safely or whatever and i kind of like pick those guards off until i sort of like reach an impasse and by that point there's really only like three like two to three guys left and so what'll typically happen is i'll sneak up on one kill him effectively instantly in a couple of like melee hits right the other guy will aggro and i'll use my vats i'll switch to a gun use my vats thing to just base instantly kill him essentially right so i really only use it at the very end of a fight to target kill one person uh how do you how do you use the slow time mechanic okay so i'm not i'm not uh i'm not doing any melee at all i'm all ranged weapons so like i'm using it to open fights and very frequently throughout fights even though i'm I'm also a little bit fragile so i'm kind of like um dodging around but like um one one of the unique things is that um when you're in slow time your weapons do effects based on where you hit the person so like i'll like um, like blind three people with three separate shots of different things and then like let my companions do some damage um uh so i'm co- kind of constantly pumping in and out of it because i need to i need like the time also because i'm playing on hard the, the, i i also feel a lot more fragile i assume that's because i'm on hard um um and like the st- the pause time also lets you heal a little like you you kind of put the, the inhaler up to your mouth a little bit faster and it doesn't eat any of your uh any of your time, so I'm I'm doing a lot of like kind of like goofing around with that stuff. So, oh, that's it. so you're not doing any stealth stuff at all. I'm doing some stealth stuff, but like it doesn't kill as fast, right? Like I think yeah. I only just got like the sneak attack perk, um, or not the perk, but the sneak attack attribute out of the sneak. Um, and like shooting a gun is very loud, so um, it like you get like that on one person. But then, like everybody else, aggroes to you. So mm. uh, you, you don't. Yeah, you... I mean, yeah, I have. Uh, I've definitely had that happen to me. And I also feel pretty fragile. I'm also playing on hard. Um, because, but I also feel like that's part of like my build or whatever. Like I don't really like have much in defense. 
I have a lot of stuff in stealth, and then like a meager amount in kind of like one-handed and ranged stuff. Like a lot of the times, I will kill people with melee weapons from stealth, but then sort of like transition into ranged weapons out uh, like after that, right? Like when I kind of blow the thing. But something that I have sort of found is that like a lot of the the placement of enemy positions are sort of like a puzzle where like you kind you have to start at you you kind of like have to start on one end of the puzzle or the other in a way like there's really only like one or two people you can sort of like start with because if you kill any of the other people they'll all just like aggro to you and you'll get like turbo fucked um and so it's a little bit about like there's been a lot of times where i have to like quick save you know try and kill this guy see if it works it doesn't work i get like immediately insta gibbed and then i could move to another and i try kind of like a different approach sort of thing i I definitely have that experience as well things feel things feel tough have you been using your companion abilities a lot uh i have not unlocked companion abilities oh okay um if you're gonna first i was like are my companions going to stealth with me and so I was, so I didn't put any points into any of that sort of thing. And then once I got a pretty good feeling that like, oh yeah, my my companions aren't going to aggro me out of stealth, um, I started sort of investing in it. So uh, yeah, but I don't have the I don't have the companion abilities yet. If if you're gonna have companions, you, you should at least get that just so you can because like the, it plays some really cool animations, right? Like when you That's you hit cool. the button, it so something that it, it does the kind of like occasional zoom in on the final kill type thing. But when you mm-hmm. use the companion abilities, it does that kind of camera thing, right? Like the camera zooms in on them and it shows them doing their ability and then it pops back to you, which uh, I think is pretty neat, especially because uh, the the effects are, are, are pretty pretty cool to, to watch. So uh, I definitely find that super interesting. I assume you just have the first two companions right now. Yeah, I only have I only have Vicar Max and uh, Parvati? Parvati. Parvati, yeah. I, I am currently running them as well, even though I, I picked up a couple more. Um, but yeah, they're uh, it's uh, it's definitely a kind of a, a neat system. I do like that you get two of them, unlike in say Skyrim where you get like one. Um, I think it it allows for some some uh, interesting stuff to happen. Plus, like everybody's got their uh, got their side quests, and that's always always fun to do. You you, you do some stuff with Parvati on the Groundbreaker. Um, which is which is neat. Uh, yeah, it, it reminds me a lot of Mass Effect, to be honest with you. I think that's what they're kind of like going for. It's like combine like in Fallout, they sort of eventually got there. Fallout New Vegas had companion quests and like a you know companion interactions and stuff like that. Um, and then Fallout uh, or Fallout New Vegas had that, and then Fallout Four had that uh, as well, but it was like a little bit lesser. Um, yeah, well. And, they and so the like the ability having two people in your party and then having like specific abilities reminds me a lot of like Mass Effect two and three, which were which was a lot like that, right? Where you're kind of coordinating between the three of you and activating your companion abilities, right? Like in in, in those yeah. games, you have like the combo system, right? So like you put the debuff on somebody and then somebody pops the debuff um, for an explosion or whatever the case may be, um, but the uh, it feels like they're trying to sort of like marry those two sort of types of gameplay together. Yeah, there's not as much kind of comboing and, and the, the ability is a little bit less often, but I definitely get your point. Um, I mean, Obsidian did New Vegas, so like it, it's definitely yeah. got that heritage. Um, yeah, I think in Vegas you got a perk for having a companion, but they didn't really, they, you know, they were otherwise just 
Uh, I mean, like, there was obviously Boone, who's the... Did you ever... The, the, with the, the sniper? sniper? Yeah. And he would just kill people, right? Because he had, like, really high perception or whatever, so you're just, like, running through the wastes. And then you would get, like, a... Like, kill cam, because, like, Boone fucking, like, sniped a rad scorpion, like, 50 miles away. <laughs> and you're just like, whoa. What did that rad scorpion do to you? Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I also think it is drawing a little bit from, you know, obviously Obsidian has a lot of experience with with these CRPGs that they've been doing uh, between Tyranny and Pillars of Eternity, right? Like, I played a bunch of Pillars of Eternity 2, um, which is obviously a little bit different because in Pillars of Eternity, it's isometric. Pillars of Eternity is more like you're playing, you are playing a D&D campaign, but as all four people in it, you know? Um, right. And, uh, but, so there's a lot of, like, stutter stopping about who you know like who goes where in the turn order um and you know comboing kind of abilities and placements and stuff and stuff like that so i definitely do think that this is sort of like the obsidian uh they are they are pulling it, it, it is it's in their wheelhouse yeah no abs- uh, uh, absolutely um i think they i think they've also done like like so just from what i've seen of the of the a Parvati quest, I think it is kind of in that kind of New Vegas line, right? Like, I don't think it's as involved as, um, uh, as say Mass Effect was. I, I think some of that comes down to Mass Effect had pretty good cinematography when it came to these things. Whereas, yeah, it also didn't have to do the open world stuff. Like, this was, yeah. well, I mean, you know, Mass Effect Andromeda was open world, but, um, the best parts of that game were when it was instanced right like you know for instance there is the warlord i can't remember his name but the krogan companion right he his companion quest was insanely fun because you're fighting in a star cruiser and you fight through the whole star cruiser and then the gravity gets flipped and then you fight through the same level and i think you go back two more times you, you fight through the same level on its side and then the same level on its like upside down and it changes the level, but, like, it's the same level or whatever. And that was, like, really cool and a really interesting sort of, like, way to engage with the, you know. And that's something you can do in a Mass Effect where you have sort of these, like, instance missions. Um, it's something that's, like, harder to pull off in uh, in any of the, the kind of, like, open world titles, right? Like, I guess you do have the dungeon sort of, like, zoning into a new area things, but um, it doesn't have quite the same... Uh, like movement or pacing uh, that that Mass Effect did. Yeah, no, I I I get that. I, like, I also just want to emphasize that, like, maybe this is a, is a broader com- topic of conversation. Is that like there's things that you can get when like the camera's kind of like free, free floating and like is dynamically like directed in a scene, whereas mm-hmm. the uh, Outer Worlds cameras are all kind of in this classic uh bethesda style where like you're in the face of your character and you're you're talking taking every conversation at on as if you were actually there which is you know its own type of immersion but it's it's different um i think especially like with companion quests you feel kind of like a a third party observer which kind of i think dampens some of the emotional impact because you feel like a third party to the to what's happening um Whereas things that involve you, I guess, feel a little bit closer. But, like, in Mass Effect, you kind of feel like you're watching a film, which I think kind of raises the emotional impact, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's also, in Mass Effect, like, they do this 
this also happens in Fallout New Vegas, so I have to assume that they carry it forward kind of in, like, Obsidian. But there's also something about, like, the vulnerability, right, and, like, the virtual friendship aspect of it, right? One of the things... The, the companion quest kind of, like, defines Mass Effect 2, right? But, like, one of the things that makes Mass Effect 2 feel great is this idea that, like, you recruit these people, but they're sort of, like, damaged and flawed, and they're, like, not whole in a way, and you help them deal with their issues, right? So in a certain sense, you're kind of, like, playing, like, a, you know, like a shotgun therapist. Do you know what I mean? To, like, help them get over their emotional baggage. And that's and that's kind of true of most companion quests in most of these kinds of games and i think that there's just like something innately sort of like i don't know emotionally fulfilling about that when your companion says oh man i'm having a really tough time right like i'm an orphan and i really want to know who my parents are and you get to like go on their little side quest and help them discover their real parents and they come to you and they go oh i you know i feel so much better thanks that feels good do you know what i mean um which is like weird and parasocial and just like what world do we live in where we're forming these like emotional connections with like Garrus Vakarian but people you know like literally form emotional connections with Garrus Vakarian over the course of the three Mass Effect games so like who am I to judge (laughs) do you know what I mean yeah yeah no absolutely yeah no I I I get that um I also think that one of the advantages in the Mass Effect sense is that like all encounters are built around combat right like there, you don't have to have a way for a stealth person. So, for instance, um, in the robot facility, like, how did you deal with the robot facility? Um, but oh, oh, that uh, I did uh, the geothermal plant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did some hacking stuff, which got rid of some of the problems. But then I like used uh, a. a an electric shotgun for everything that I couldn't deal with with hacking. Yeah, right. So, like, you activated, like, the robots killing each other? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I did the same thing, right? And to me, that was, like, a like I, I kept trying to do... I kept trying to just, like, kill the guys in stealth. But, like, the rooms were pretty small, and I was pulling people from other rooms a lot of the time. So, eventually, I just kind of was like, you know what, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to go through... I, mean, I can sneak through this dungeon. I, I know these paths. Um... So I just snuck through the whole thing, and I, like, went and I talked to the guy, and I got, like, the, the key card or whatever, his password, and I went up to the terminal, and I turned on the thing, and the robots all, like, killed each other. Um, and I was, and, you know, like, that was a path through the dungeon that was, like, open to me because I had stealth, and I had, like, a decent amount of hack or whatever. Um, but, like, it would also have been just as valid to be a guns a character who walks into the dungeon with his heavy machine gun and guns a kills all of the the robots do you know what i mean yeah Um, absolutely mass effect doesn't really like the differences in play styles right like you can be a tech guy right who reprograms enemy robots to fight each other um and sometimes you shoot your gun and sometimes you like overload shields or you can be a biotics guy that's like crowd controlling the robots and throwing them in the air and then blowing you know the things up or you can be a guns guy who just like runs in and uses guns a lot or whatever but at the end of the day those are all like combat focuses to your character it's about like what kind of combat you want to use in order to uh progress the encounter um mass effect doesn't have the room for the sort of like i don't want to call it emergent because it's obviously not emergent um but the the it doesn't have the room for non-combat solutions yeah. in that same sort of way. Yeah. Um, 
Maybe because, uh, yeah, it's combat engines a lot deeper. I think there are just, like, a lot more enemies in Mass Effect, right? Like, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, and Mass Effect is also a lot about, like, you know... I mean, it is a lot about, like, that sort of, like, crowd control and stuff like that. How can you sort of split up the group and, you know, what are the priority targets? Um, which is why, which is part of why, you know, like, even though these games get compared, I sort of think they shouldn't be. Like, one is kind of in one zone, the other is in the other. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, like, for instance, I don't really have a... There's never, like, a time where I look at an enemy and think about how that enemy engages me in a different way than other enemies do, right? Like, I understand that a, you know, a Marauder Lookout is different than a Marauder Ringleader and is different than a Marauder Goon, but I don't have a really great sense of how they are different, do you know what I mean? Um, because I don't really, like, interface with them in that way. Basically, I just walk up behind them and I whap them a bunch of times with my shock baton, um... And, uh, and so, like, that's a place where, you know, I mean, maybe if I was a, maybe if I was, like, a different sort of spec, so to speak, um, and I was kind of the Guns of Blazing type, I would be more, I would be paying attention to, like, okay, the, the, the lookout is a sniper that's gonna hit me with really high damage shots, and they're up in the, you know, so they're my priority target, or something kind of along those lines. Yeah, no, that, that, that absolutely makes sense to me, um. I don't know if I got a lot more else to say about to to contribute to that though. Fair enough. Okay, but so another thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, was the story. Right, we have seen games like this a lot. Right, it has been you know whatever fifteen years since like Bioshock came out with the kind of like oh make your choices on how you know these things kind of like come down or also Oblivion or also Fallout Three or also Fallout New Vegas. Right, there's a lot of games out there that kind of like present you with these choices and for what it's worth a lot of them do it kind of like well and in a complicated manner um i think we have kind of gotten to a point where a lot of the time it's sort of about like where are you like what are you willing to kind of make your you know uh like where where is does the morality fall in this stuff right so like for instance in fallout 3 i felt like a lot of choices were good or evil which is fine and i think that's actually pretty valid right like um the Fallout 3 is sort of like an exercise. It's sort of like the it's like taking a a personality test, right? But for ethics instead, where you're just kind of asked a lot of ethical questions and they're pretty straightforward and I bet most people who think of themselves as good people answered in the same way. Most of us didn't blow up Megaton, for instance. Yeah. Um but uh the that you know, like that choice is still there and allowing us to make the choice is like pretty meaningful. The thing that I thought was really awesome about Fallout New Vegas is instead of having a kind of like moral compass in a basic kind of ethical sense, it had a very political compass, right? Right. Where it was about like, okay, do you want the the sort of liberal bureaucracy of the NCR, right? Or like the brutal fascistic kind of unity of of Kaisar's Legion, right? Or, you know, do you want to make your own sort of decisions apropos of any of these sorts of things, right? And what are the political, like, are you going to ally with the Brotherhood of Steel who are very, like, technocratic? Or are you going to not include them in your new world order sort of thing. And I thought that was like a, like an interesting sort of take. And here we have kind of gotten to a place where it's like, it is moral and it is like political and it is like all of these things at the same time. And it feels like there are so many different vectors on how to make the decision that the decision itself is kind of like, I need to isolate one thing. And what is the thing that I care about most to make my 
uh, like to make my kind of choice. So, um, for the uninitiated, and I apologize if I'm going to spoiler this like very first section of yeah. the game. So, so I'm going to say here, like if you haven't played it and this is interesting to you, skip. I guess the rest of this podcast, at least until the hour mark, and uh, and go play it yourself. But yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to talk. We're going to talk about this first big decision, I guess. Yeah. So the first big decision is uh, you you show up at a a kind of like company town, right? Company town is run by a guy named Reed. He runs a plant that makes canned fish, right? Called Saltuna. A bunch of his townsfolk have deserted the colony and gone down to the botany lab where they have been apparently prospering and the geothermal power plant has been sharing the power between them. You get a mission to deprive the the community of its power, right? Like the deserter community of its power. But at the end of the day, you can choose which community. If you want to deprive the company town, you can deprive the company town. If you want to deprive the deserter community, you can deprive the deserter community. And there's a bunch of other like sort of like little decisions that go into it. But that's the that's the main crux of it. So, which community did you feed the power to? Um, I fed it to the town. Oh, interesting. I Wow, that's really interesting. I thought you would have fed it to the community. Why um, did you feed it to the town? Parvati told, like, Parvati was, like, like makes a very strong case to you. I mean, I don't know how strong oh it is. Oh, my God, but you and I probably did the same thing then. Because I actually also felt the same, <laughs> the same way. Um, I also, so the, did, did, what did, what did you do after that, buddy? Well, so, Ren, so the thing I did after that was I convinced Reed to leave. And yep, Adelaide that's exactly what yeah. I did. Wow, okay. <laughs> that's funny. I really expected you to just not with Reed. I thought that you were going to be like, no, fuck these guys. Uh, yeah, I was, so I, I was, I, I was going either like I, I was torn, but then Parvati like made 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 her play to me right, and like I didn't want to like I didn't want to piss off Parvati. I didn't know how that was going to play out, so I was like, yeah, I'll do what she says, and I'll deal with the consequences later. Oh um, my god! <laughs> I was so excited to to I I was really expecting you to have gone another way, so I was excited to kind of like <laughs> dig into the details. You know what I mean? But I had the exact same experience, right? I went to the deserted community. I was like, obviously Adelaide is way better. Um, and then you find out that Adelaide, like, the reason that her community is successful is because she uses human corpses as fertilizer. And I was like, ugh. But See, like, that, also, that doesn't bother me at all, right? Like, yeah, that was just yeah, like... Right, like, it, given the context, right? I was like, part of me wants to make this, like, a decision point, right? Like, and because, sure... I see the sort of slippery slope there. And she talks about it. She, like, in a very nonchalant way that kind of made me, like, you know, clearly this, this woman doesn't have a lot of love for the sanctity of human life. And I could see a version of things where, like, she's murdering people to keep the town fed. And that's obviously terrible. But, like, also there are a lot of random marauders that it seems like you could just kill uh, and not have to worry about things. And they make such a huge point of the gigantic graveyard at Edgewater that I was like, well, uh, okay. <laughs> um, and then, and then I got to the, the, the power plant and Parvati was like, Hey, listen, Reed's a dick, but there's like really good people in Edgewater and like, they don't deserve to suffer because of like Reed or whatever. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. Ah, uh, that's a really good point. And so I, my then goal was to reunite peacefully the deserters and the community. Yeah, I, I, that, that's part of like part of it too. Is like, you know, like 
the the case that Parvati makes is like not even that Reed's a dick is like Reed's kind of a company man, but he's doing what he thinks is best, and I think that's actually borne out because like when you convince him, he's like, yeah, Adelaide's obviously doing a better job than I would do, so I need to leave so I can get out of the way of this, right? Which is like I didn't expect him to like take it like such a champ, right? Like he oh uh, see that's a little bit different. I see when I talk to Reed. I actually initially was just like, I'm just going to convince everybody to go home without Adelaide. I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, if Adelaide wants to die for her stubbornness, whatever. You know, like, that's that's not my problem. Because um, it seems like everybody else – part of it is that, like, the other deserters are willing to go with you um, without Adelaide if you do their side quests. And I had done their side quests. Um, and then I got to read – and Reed essentially told me how he was poisoning his own community by because you like you dig into it a little bit, and he's like, "Oh yeah, like we fucking put everything in saltuna. We put wood chips in there. We put canid bits. It all tastes like saltuna in the end." And you realize that the reason that the town keeps suffering from these plagues is because like Reed is is poisoning them. And I was like, "All right, yeah, you gotta go, Bucko." So uh, so I convinced him to leave, and then went and got Adelaide. See, he but he's not aware that that is poisoning them, right? Like he's doing it because it's like a money saving thing, but he doesn't think that there's any real harm to it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's true, but he's still, like, responsible for that harm, even sure. without the intention. Right, but, but which like... Is, which is the thing that kind of, like, bumped him up. Uh, right, but, like, him. once you point that out to him, he kind of, like, he's like, oh, yeah, I fucked up. I have to, Yeah, that's like, true. I was actually pretty sure I was going to have to kill him at that point. And I was yeah. like, all right, let's do this. Let's fucking fight. Where's my attack option? But then I just kind of, like, kept going through the dialogue tree. And eventually he gets to the point where he's like, ah, I'm just going to leave. And it's actually a little bit heartbreaking because he's like, oh, like, my life is over, too. Like, you don't resign from the company. They're going to, like like wreck me and i was like wow that's actually kind of like a little bit noble of you but also all these people have died and it's your fault so sure (laughs) sure sure i mean i I guess it's like a a different perspective on like a thing that like in his circumstance he like you know he's doing what he thinks is is best um which i like i thought was yeah i think and i definitely think that like reed is sort of uh in a way, he's sort of undone by, like, incompetence, right? Like, he, he, he I don't think he's a malicious guy. Yeah. Right? Um, and I thought, and that was actually kind of, like, nice uh, in a certain sense because, like, he kind of comes off like an ass. But, like, you get it in a way where he is talking gruffly about Adelaide. But he's also sort of, like, sympathetic to the deserters. And he's like, I just want them to, like, rejoin the community. I want, like, the community to be, to be whole again. And I can get behind that. I get that sort of thing. Um, so, like, yeah... <laughs> Reed is sort of, like, undone, in my playthrough at least, by his bad decisions when it comes to the plant and the plague. Right? Yeah. And, like, letting Adelaide's son die. Like, that just seems, like, shitty. And yeah. if you read – the other thing is – did you read um, – there's a terminal where they talk about the plague? Yeah, so – so, the, but that's, like, a company – Paul. like, that's, like, a thing that I don't put on, on, on Reed's shoulders. Like, that they only give medicine to people who are working – hard or like whoever like because like that's company policy right like um and also like the weird religion that says that like if you're sick it's because you're not working hard enough right like and this is like a level of like well these people have clearly bought and hook line and sinker into it so even though i might recognize that as being kind of like corporate bullshit right like it's not like i like i can blame them for believing a thing that they clearly sincerely believe right like the the biggest asshole in that town i think is max um who is, you know, one of my companions now, right? Like, he's, he's fun to have around, but he's kind of like, you know, these fucking sheeple. Like, I just want to study my religion. 
um, and I care too much about like the philosophical underpinnings, and I beat too many people up with like hockey sticks. Uh, so I got sent to this backwater, um, which uh, yeah, I mean, he's a really was, uh, interesting character. Max is an interesting addition because, like, you know, I almost always in these situations, like, I don't think I've ever come to a game where I can recruit companions where I choose the options. It's like, no, don't join my crew, yeah. right? But like, Max's whole thing is like the fr- the closest I've ever gotten to clicking that button because, like, you know, the the side quest is you go out and you find. Um, these like controversial texts who I'm pretty sure are a reference to Bakunin, who's like a communist philosopher, um, but named Bakuno uh, or whatever. And you find his journal and his journal is in French. And Max is like, God damn it. I don't speak French. This is some bullshit. Right? Like, and he just kind of like freaked out. It was such a dick about it that I was just like, wow, I really don't want to like, have you in my party right like See, you are not likable or relatable at all also like the way that he was like really shitty and patronizing to parvati when you first like meet him or whatever i was just like oh what an asshole i hope i kill him right like and now he's like running around as an adventurer with me so yeah so like the initial thing put me off him but they're like oh it's, it's, it's fucking french like that that really endeared him to me like it's like like fucker like clearly cares enough about like the philosophy to try and like find his way with it. But he's like, uh-huh. yeah, I was like a, a, a minister for a prison and, you know, maybe I learned how to beat some people up and how to hack some stuff, but you know, whatever it's all for God or something. Right. Like, yeah. Um, I feel like, I feel like he's also like an extended firefly reference um, because uh, so, I mean, have you watched firefly? Yes. Yeah. So the book, uh, whatever his name is, I can't remember. The, oh, shepherd uh, title. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shepherd Book, right? Like, oh, he's like a preacher, but like every episode he does something like badass, like fucking, you know, he like takes a gun from somebody and he drops the magazine and pops the 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 round in the chamber out or whatever. And everybody's always like, how does a shepherd know how to do this? And he's like, I'm not always a good shepherd. And he does that like every fucking episode. And I feel like that's exactly the the... the kind of like archetype that we're engaging with Vicar Max in, right? Or Vicar Max. See, I I think it's a little bit different because like Book to me feels like he's like a, like, you know, like a, he was previously something else and now he's like a shepherd, right? Like kind of like the retired badass type of deal, right? That's like living serenely. Whereas like Vicar Max is just like actively both at the same time. He's like, yeah, fuck you. I'm going to fucking beat the shit out of people and you're going to like God or not. I don't give a shit, right? Like, I can't believe I'm stuck on this fucking backwater, but I might as well make the best of it while I'm here. Because you don't fuck with the company type of stuff. You don't fuck with Spacer's Choice. You've tried the the best, now try the rest. Spacer's Choice. How do you feel about about, the politics of Spacer's Choice and the game or whatever? um, So I want to dig into it more because I overheard this conversation that was essentially that there's a new earth like there there is like a, a governing body that kind of like the way it's best found to like keep everything in check is it like grants um it grants like the exclusive right to these planets to um to the companies but like the presence of the minister is apparently a thing that's like handed down from like the the, the overarching government but i haven't heard anything more about them so i'm, I'm curious because like it's clearly like clearly like a super oppressive uh like you know like corporate owned everything but like uh-huh. the, the groundbreaker is kind of my shit right like it's like a bunch of freewheeling like free marketeers like doing whatever they want 
um, well, like kind of fighting against the bigger guys, but like they can't, like you know, they're, they're in this kind of like unsteady truce with them. I, I really uh, enjoy it. Um, yeah, I have some. I have seen some sort of like, uh, kind of lazy sort of like critiques. Um, that's that, like, like you know, I saw a tweet that was like, oh, like the Outer Worlds is sort of like the spiritual successor to Bioshock and taking on, right, like, libertarian ideology. And I was kind of like, that's not very accurate. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. they, they kind of, like, drop, like, the free market and stuff like that. But it's not really, like, actually dealing with sort of, like, you know, like, libertarian politics in the, in, like, in, like, the free market economics sort of sense. It's really talking about sort of, like, corporatization um, in, like... in, in excess, which I think is... A very a, like a different sort of like beast, and like maybe you could make some argument that like you know you know like maybe some liberal or like leftist would make an argument that's like oh well that's the natural conclusion of libertarianism, but you kind of have to sell me on that middle part in order for it to be a real critique of libertarianism. If that makes yeah. sense, yeah, no, if, um, if if you're gonna take it this way, it's kind of like the it's kind of like the you know the the straw man version of libertarianism but i don't think that's the like i think it's like an, an anti-corporatist kind of message which yeah yeah exactly like that's the thing and that's the thing that i find interesting about it right like i think it like, kind of like moves past that in a way um to kind of just sort of like narrow in on the sort of like hyper corporatization of things and it is funny because like you will see like reading the computer terminals or whatever um you will see sort of like the corporate overlords behaving in these like really repressive like authoritarian ways but in ways that are like kind of like couched in like hr speak and I, that that joke i don't think will ever stop being funny to me in the outer worlds right you know like when they talk about how like you have to put in for your sick leave four to six weeks beforehand, right? Like, you know, like, that's just, I, I don't know what, it, what, like, I can't even really, like, dissect or explain the joke, but it's just so, it's such a good joke, you know? You should spend, like, some time, like, talking to the shop owner on the Crownbreaker. I don't think you're quite there yet, but, like, just, like, ask him some random things, and he's, like, he's got this big, he's got, like, the mascot head on his head. Oh, that um, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you talked to him? No, no, no. I talked to the security guy for a long time, and uh, and then I kind of, like, advanced a couple of, I, like, picked up basically all the quests, and then I stopped for the night. Yeah, so, you, you so, like, you'll talk to him, and you'll be like, so, is it hot in there? And he'll be like, not as hot as these prices, right? Like, <laughs> That's funny. And then, um, so definitely, definitely look at the terminals because there's like a little bit more in there. Like he's got, he like basically, he's got some messages that you can read at different points. But like he's, it's, it's, it's basically all that joke at once, which is, is fucking phenomenal. Um, uh, but yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think the humor in this game is pretty on point. Um, uh, even including like, uh, the, the AI for the ship. I think is pretty good. You ha like you you unlock a little bit more as like you you progress through the story. Mm -hmm. um, you get more like responses out of her. Um, uh, also, kind of like so. Like I was initially kind of annoyed by it, but like so the way they get around like people calling you by your name is you kill somebody and you basically just, like your drop pod lands on Captain Alex Jones or it's not Alex Jones. That's definitely not right. Alex uh, Hawthorne. Hawthorne, yeah. Alex Jones is somebody else entirely. Um, 
<laughs> you land on uh, Hawthorne, and so like you kind of assume his identity, and so everybody just calls you Captain Hawthorne, which is kind of like I was like, oh, okay, so this is how they get around like the the naming thing. But I think it's actually like it, it kind of grows on me just because like he keeps like building into it like who this guy was, and then he was like an actual personality, right? Like, um, you you find out that like one of the bureaucrats on the station was like, I, have you read all the messages on the ship, like in the captain's log? Oh, see, no, I haven't actually. So, so I've made this mistake of I like unlocked the captain's log, but then like the the navigation was right there. So I was like, well, I'll just like go to the groundbreaker. So oh, I just okay. like went to the groundbreaker, and it like dumps you out. Um, you can immediately turn around and get back on the ship onto the yeah. Well, oh, and then, no, you can't. And then I walked forward happens, and I right. had a conversation with a guy, and he was like, "Your ship's impounded." <laughs> So I was like, right. "Oh, I forgot about fuck. that." Like I didn't even yeah. pick up the uh, like. Have you used the disguise thing at all? Um, yes. Yeah. So they like talk about the disguise thing, um, but I di- I didn't pick it up out of the ship, and then it got impounded. But I just solved the impact. I haven't got back to the ship because you know, like I just picked up those quests, and then uh, and then I called it there. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, you you eventually like come out of. Uh, uh, you you get your ship like out of impound or whatever. It's interesting that he was planning on uh, selling the the scientist guy that wakes you up out, whatever that guy's name is, Phineas. Um. So I, I don't think it's supposed to be definitive that he was. Like he said he was, but like if you read some of the messages, you get the impression that like the bureaucrats kind of, um, kind of like a a pest, right? Like he's constantly uh. bothering Hawthorne because like. The, the bureaucrat fancies himself kind of like like the the bard for the adventure that is Captain Hawthorne. Um, but, like, Hawthorne clearly just, like, like it, this is as convenient as it, as it is. Like, you know, it, he maintains his relationship as long as it's convenient, but I, I'm not convinced that he would have actually sold out Phineas. Um, oh, okay. Uh, but, yeah. But, like, that's but that's kind of, like, interesting. Like, it's interesting that you, you, you had that conversation before you went and... Uh, and you read that stuff because, like, you really, like, you know, this guy's just kind of like a fanboy and, like, you know, but he's powerful. So he's like, oh, I, I can, like, insert myself into this guy's life and, like, live vicariously through him. It's 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 all very interesting. Um, like, you get the impression, like, the reason he impounded your ship was because Hawthorne hasn't been answering his emails. And he's kind of being petty. Um, it's, it. I, I think it's really neat. Um, yeah. Like, the humor is really good. I think the I think the the game's pretty good too, right? Like all in all, I think the, the combat feels pretty smooth. The weapons feel like not as good as like say Destiny, which is the other game I've been playing a ton of, but like the mechanics are solid. Um, when you played, what was it like? Like, did you sit down and just like binge for eight hours straight? Um, the first night I played for like six hours straight. Like I I, I get to like a good stopping point and then I put it down and then I don't think about it for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll get like the next time I go back to it, I end up playing until like I'm like. I played all through the first planet, and then I played all through the Groundbreaker, and then I assume when I next time I go back to it, I'll go all through that next planet, which is kind of like how I work, so, yeah. Yeah, because something that I found interesting was I was having a hard time sort of like staying focused on it, in a way. Um, Like, I found myself in this situation, and it's probably because I like split my focus with like a lot of these games, right? Like with WoW or whatever, I'll be like doing something, but also like watching something. Um, and I would get into these, like, situations where I would just be, like, doing a lot of, like, dialogue and, like, paying attention, but also getting, like, a little bit, like, restless, like, come on, I just want to, like, get back out there kind of thing. So I've been playing in, like, these small spurts of, like, 
you know, 90 minutes or so. And then I'll go play, you know, whatever, like StarCraft or some shit. Um, sort of in between, uh, which... Like, like I, which is an interesting sort of, like, divergence of my play style. Um, I feel like the last time I had a game like this to kind of, like, dig into in the way that I do uh, The Outer Worlds was maybe, like, Mass Effect Andromeda, which I just, like, went really hard for. Or I guess kind of, like, the campaign mode in, in uh, not Andromeda, in Anthem also had me in that same sort of way. Um, but, uh, but it's kind of like any, like, like... In a weird way, I almost wonder if I'm, like, outgrowing this sort of, like, type of game. Um, which you hear all the time. People talk about, like, oh, I have kids now. I don't have the time. Obviously, I don't have kids. But, you know, uh, the, the the way that you interact with some of these uh, different... Like, the way that you interact with some of these different kind of, like, genres and titles um, changes yeah. over time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. Like, so I kind of have this, like, start and stop relationship with the other big game that came out in the past couple of weeks, which is Death Stranding. Like, I played that game for, like, 90 minutes. I'm like, ah, that's enough of this for now. Even though I really like it, I just don't want to, like, spend six hours on it. Um, and I think that just kind of, like, what's scratching your itch. Um, and I definitely get your point, right? That, like, you know, oh, I don't have as much free time. But then I'll be like, oh, I can play, like, Destiny in a small chunk. And then I'll go and play Destiny for six hours, right? Like, so, like, even though, like, I like I kind of, like, uh, like academically, I guess is the right way to put it, um have uh uh like kind of the, the same impulse um uh, uh sorry uh even though i kind of academically have like those same impulses it's it's or like the the impulse to like limit my time because i've got other better things to do it, it doesn't always work out that way in practice um which is kind of funny to me right like in, that is in, actually really interesting i think maybe i'm just in a weirdly like restless place because i've been bopping around between a bunch of different games right like the outer worlds starcraft wow hearthstone diablo um i started playing diablo 3 again for like no reason i just kind of like wanted to see it diablo 4 um, hype uh yeah it was, it was a little bit of diablo 4 hype it was also a little bit of like i got a push notification you know, like, in the... It, part of this is just, I guess I spent a lot of time on the Blizzard launcher. Like, I was sitting on the WoW thing in the Blizzard launcher, or I was sitting on whatever page of the Blizzard launcher, and I just saw... It's like, oh, Season 19 begins in four days. And I was like, oh, man, like, you know... And, and we do this every once in a while, where it's like, yeah, like, I'll, maybe I'll do something for this, like, Diablo sort of season. Um, and uh, and the other thing is that I also got the Necromancer... I got the Necromancer pack a long time ago. Um, which was just kind of like an added hero class, and I never played it because I told, like, a friend of mine was like, hey, you should get this and we'll play together, and I was like, okay, and then I just, like, never followed through on that. And so there was there was also, like, a new class for me to level up, um, which was uh, which was obviously, like, you know, interesting and, like, engaging, right? Like, being able to see the new... Uh, new set of skills and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, the new set of, like, skills and stuff like that. And so, you know, that, that, that might be... Um, that, like, might not be located in, in the Outer Worlds. I also think that maybe I'm engaging in the Outer Worlds in, in a certain sort of, like, sense. Uh, that's, like, that slow, methodical kind of, like, approach. Like, first of all, I die a lot. Because you do things to see if they work and then they don't. You know what I mean? Where you, like, you, like, quick load as you're standing behind the guy with, like, your knife out, right? <laughs> or you quick save. And then you kill the guy and, like, see if anybody fucking noticed. Um... So, uh, so that's also just like, in a certain sense, it's almost like an inherently frustrating kind of, uh, play style. Um, I got punished by a couple, by like, 
not quick loading fast enough or quick saving fast enough. So I got punished a couple of times where I would like go pretty deep into like a compound to do a thing. And then I would like, you know, load back by 10 minutes or whatever. It's like, ah, oh, fuck me, man. Like so far behind. Uh, that that always makes me want to yeah, play Yeah, that's 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 yeah. No, I definitely get that. Um, the game is pretty decent about auto saving, but like, you know, I'm definitely hammering on that quick save key yeah. uh, to make sure that doesn't happen too much. I think really, I mean, it understands when you enter and exit combat, right? Like it auto saves when you exit a combat, right? Um, but like when you're doing a lot of stealth stuff, you typically end each sort of stealth air, like each area with a big real combat, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. um, you know, when you're kind of doing those like initial, like sort of probing and you're running around and you're seeing where you'll get noticed and where you won't or whatever, there's like a lot of dying there that would auto save you back a, a decent amount. I also did a lot of exploring in the Emerald Vale. Like even before I did the deserters quest, I did the quest where you go and there's the big, um, uh, like marauder hideout in the town or whatever um, and then there's also like the community center I basically cleared the whole map to be honest um, and then got the picked up all the quests for that stuff later because you go to the deserted town and you get the quest to like go get the three manuals for the guy and I was like oh well I had already completed these and so I just fast traveled there picked up the thing and fast traveled back and then I had already did the thing where you get Zoe for Grace or whatever, so I just fast traveled there with the comic book or whatever, and I was just like, "Hey, come back to town." And she's like, "Okay." Um, so in a certain sense, I also sort of like front loaded all of my like action in the early part of that of that area, um, rather than the more traditional way where you sort of like get the quest from the quest hub and then go and follow the quest to do your things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 that's fair enough. Yeah. Um... But overall, you would recommend The Outer Worlds oh, yeah, to, absolutely. to our audience. Okay, cool. Me too, uh, in case that wasn't obvious for our glowing discussion. Uh, I do plan on keeping playing it, so I want uh, like, we'll, we'll probably revisit it in future weeks um, as necessary. But otherwise, how was your week? What have you been playing? Tell me about uh, Death Stranding. Death Stranding is a fucking trip. Um, it is... <laughs> In the same way that, like, kind of like the prequels were George Lucas without a filter, I feel like this game is definitely Hideo Kojima without a filter. Um, I'm not convinced it's, like... It's an interesting game. It's definitely, like... If, you, know, you know how we sometimes talk about, like, what like what is gaming Citizen Kane? Like, mm-hmm. I think Death Stranding's a very strong contender for for that title, right? Oh, like, wow. a, piece, a piece of, like, real kind of art in like a way that like it kind of like bridges that balance between like like a true like people call this game a walking simulator but i don't think that's quite right like there's a little bit more to it there's definitely more gamey elements to it right like there's definitely like real mechanics to it and uh um it just kind of like does some really cool stuff with the story which i'm not super deep into i'm still like i'm like midway through chapter three i want to say maybe it's chapter two I forget. I forget if it's it maybe it might be start with like a zero prologue that I'm not indexing properly, um, but like like the game elements interact with like what's actually happening, and it's all kind of stupid, right? Like you find out that like the main an- or not the main antagonist, but like one of the antagonistic human forces, which are called the mules, are people that are like literally addicted to delivering packages because 
like and they can't because they're not like because they're insane but they take your packages and they put it in like a post box because they think like they're addicted to the feeling of getting likes from delivering packages which is like some weird meta commentary on social oh media God. yeah it literally calls like like when you get likes it releases a chemical called lysin into your blood it's like what the fuck right like god damn it kojima like you like kojima's got like the the, the image that I saw, like somebody, somebody posted the the uh, image from a, uh, I think it's 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 that British show. I can't remember the name of it, but like the image is, I know authors that use subtext, and they're all cowards, right? Like that's basically this entire game, right? Like the na- the president of the Bridges organization, her name's Bridget, and like just like nothing is nothing is subtle, like and there's like weird corporate sponsorship, right? Like you drink Monster Energy for extra stamina and your canteen turns water into monster energy because it's like more energy efficient or something and then every once in a while like your character who is played by norman reedus will say something about like wow this is just like like, apparently if you if you're riding like a particular trike he'll say wow this is just like ride with norman reedus it's like what the what the fuck are you doing like this game is like so insane like the, the the fucking there's a character named dead man it's like i am my name is dead man because i was a coroner it's like God, like what the fuck right like I, I just but it's so it's so intriguing right like that i can't like keep being drawn into it but like the writing is also not great right like like there's like not only are these like dumb like naming conventions but like like uh so uh this is a very mild spoiler for very early on in the game but like okay. um so the the Bridget you find out is dying. Um, actually, this is in the trailer, so it's not super, uh, it's not super spoilery. But she's dying, and you have to go dispose of her body. There's a plot important reason for this. But you come back, and then like Dead Man says the president wants to meet with you, and you're like, what? I just went and burned the body of the president. What are you talking about? And then he doesn't answer your question, and then you then like it's revealed to you, but like it's like it, it's not like he's being coy about it. It just kind of feels like it's like miswritten in a weird way, if that makes sense. Um, and it's gotten better as the game has gone on, but like it is, it is not super. Like it, there's definitely flaws there. Um, but it's like I said, it's super intriguing. The mechanics are super neat. You basically place like so. You the game plays basically. You're delivering. It literally you're delivering packages, and you have to like walk across this landscape that's got like mountains, right? And like minor elevation changes can be a real challenge, especially if you get your packages stacked up real high. Like the walking simulation is actually like weirdly realistic and like weirdly compelling but like part of like one of the themes is like you're connected across like some weird multiverse so like um if like i put down a ladder to climb up a hill it might appear in somebody else's game and they can use it to climb up as well so you're like helping other people along um and it's just it's just like this really cool interconnected thing and when you use their ladder you can like that ladder to like send them like kudos for it and it's like you but like it, like it, you really like. I was like, oh, this is kind of like hokey, right? But then like, it's like somebody used your ladder. They give you seventeen likes. I'm like, oh boy, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like it really feels like you're you're like, like even though it's just like this little thing, like it's like, oh well, if I put this here, not only is it going to benefit me, but it's going to potentially benefit other players too, right? Like it's it's it's, and like you can deliver like if you like a drop a package because you get attacked right you get too far away from it it'll disappear from your world but somebody else can pick it up and if they deliver it for you 
you get like I think actually most of the likes for it, right? Like you, the, that player also gets likes, but like you both get credit for it. it. It's like this really cool interconnected experience from that aspect, um, which is interesting because it's like you kind of get like like it's it's all asynchronous, right? Like you you don't see other people, um, uh, but like you get kind of like that community-ish feeling that you kind of get with an MMO, but it's in this like single player, like strongly narrative driven RPG. It's, it's, it's a very unique experience. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's neat, but also weird, but also neat. When it comes out on PC, you should definitely play it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm going to have to just to see how like weird it is. Here's like, the other thing is that I've never played a Kojima game, right? Like I never played Metal Gear, uh, solid or Metal Gear, right? Like any of the varieties of them. Um, and so I don't have the same sort of like, you know, like he, he built this sort of like bona fide brand in a way, sort of like outside of my purview. So I'm also just like really interested to sort of like what it's, it's like showing somebody, you know, the prequels before they ever saw Star Wars in a way, right? Like I'm the person who never saw Star Wars and I get to watch the prequels like in order in a way, um, I kind of get, like, the uncut, you know, like, the the unfiltered Kojima of Death Stranding right off the bat. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because, like, I think a lot of the, like, a lot of the the stuff about, like, the, especially the early Metal Gear Solid games were built on the strength of the stealth gameplay, right? Especially because it was, it's like, a, especially was a much narrower genre than it is, um, even though I guess it's not super popular now. But, it, but like, it built on the gameplay, and, like, the story was always this kind of weird thing. Yep. But, like like the the authorship and the thing that keeps people with it is built on that story right like metal gear rising revengeance is a metal gear game with metal gear themes and like metal gear insanity in it but it's a character action game as opposed to a stealth game right um and like like i like that that that, like kojima-ness i think rides on top of it right like uh like fucking um like if i highly I'm, i'm gonna link this in the description for all you people out there to go to go uh to go watch, but like the Senator Armstrong speech is like, it's like corny, but it's like incredibly weird and incredibly prescient in a lot of ways, right? Like the game came out in 2013 and you've got like a strong man Senator yelling, make America great again. And like, and like, it's, it's not like it's supposed to be tied to like, obviously it can't be tied to Trump. Cause like, that wasn't a thing that had happened yet, yeah. but like, it was like, it's like weirdly prescient. It's, it's just, it's, it's it's one of these things where like him like uh, the, the the best comparison is like uh near automata right like the gameplay was done by platinum i think they also did the gameplay for revengeance but like yoko taro was able to tell his his weird story which is you know another kind of a tory thing another very different thing it's very different than kojima but like in the same kind of way where like even though like like the like the gameplay and the story are really well married even though they're two different people like you know like they're, they're being done by different people but it just blends masterfully together um yeah and i know i've been kind of rambling with this but it's just it's such a weird and different experience that i think it's worth 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 exploring yeah uh i mean hey it sounds that way <laughs> um i want to like talk about things that i've been playing that have been different but like i just talked about like it is just World of Warcraft, Diablo, StarCraft. I do want to say that I've been pl- I've been playing a lot more StarCraft, and for some reason, I kind of like 
forgot how good of a game StarCraft was. Like, Rachel reminded me that StarCraft was my game of the year in, like, 2015 or whatever. Um, because, like, Legacy of the Void was so good. Uh, and it continues to be, like, you know, good. Um, one of the things that... Uh, I think it's just the like the narrative. I've, I've, I've essentially played the entire campaign. I'm on like the last couple of missions. I've essentially played the entire campaign sort of like back to back. And there's this thing that Blizzard writers do where the, they do these sort of like plot twists. And they're just so like good and like powerful. And I don't think I really fully appreciated like at the time just how powerful some of these like plot twists felt and for some reason i was just in that zone when i was playing it recently over the last like two weeks like the so i'm essentially gonna spoil this stuff and i apologize but i feel like it's uh you know it's an old game at this point and most of you aren't gonna uh get into it so warning this is mostly for alexio who told me he wanted to avoid spoilers um but like you know, this, so the story of Wings of Liberty is you're Jim Rayner and you're simultaneously like fighting this revolution against the dictatorial Arcturus Mengsk, who was a guy that you worked with and he betrayed you, and is the guy and is the reason that Kerrigan became the Queen of Blades um, in the first place. But you eventually realize, like Rayner, eventually like realizes that he has the power to reverse the Queen of Blades transformation in Kerrigan, right? And he teams up with the Dominion, who are the dudes that he, like, raised this revolutionary fighting force for, um, in order to, in order to revert Kerrigan back to, like, her human form, right? And so she does that. Then, uh, in the facility after Kerrigan has been, um, reverted, the Dominion attacks the facility and captures and executes Jim Rayner. It's just like, holy shit, right? Right off the bat. Very first mission, they completely blindsided. Like, it was, you know, that that was, like, the big thing. And so now Kerrigan is like, okay, well, I live for vengeance against Arcturus Mengsk. So she goes to Zerus, which is the birthplace of the Zerg, retransforms herself into the Queen of Blades with the power of the Primal Zerg, um, and, like, the very first, you know, like, the very first Zerg spawning pools, uh, rather than with the Overmind and the stuff that happened with the Overmind in the original StarCraft. She returns to Dominion space and is waging this just, like, unholy war of devastation against the person who stole, like, the love of her life from her. And then she finds out that Jim Rayner is actually alive... And, like, breaks him out, and they then team up to, like, defeat Arcturus Mengsk. But in the whole process of this, you're then learning about, like, the Dark Zelnaga God, because Zeratul is running around, who's, like, the Dark Templar, or the, the Protoss. He's, like, the Dark Templar, and he's like, no, but for real, guys, there's this Dark God, and he just, like, resurrected himself, and we really gotta kill him. And then Zeratul goes to Artanis, and is like, Artanis, you have to not do this thing, because if you do this thing, it's gonna play into... Amon's hands, but Artanis is like, nah, Zeratul, I totally got this. And he does the thing and gets mind-controlled by Amon, and Artanis kills Zeratul. And it's just like, oh, all, every one of these hits so hard, but they're like also like back-to-back, and they're also so like weirdly emotional in a way. Like, I, the, the, the look on Rainer's face 
when Kerrigan walks into his jail cell as the Queen of Blades and releases him from the Dominion's custody and the, like, disgust on his face at the, like, Shakespearean tragedy that she turned herself back into the Queen of Blades as an instrument of vengeance because she didn't understand that he was still alive. But he was alive, and now he's facing her. Ah, it's so, ah, it's so, like, melodramatic, but, like, in a very, like, earned and emotional sort of way and the only time we ever talk about starcraft 2 is for esports and that's like a huge thing and that's great and everything and i you know no 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 hate but man people have really like slept on the narrative that's being told here and i also feel like it comes into play in the other blizzard properties right like the big twist of diablo 3 right when you're working with leah to get the black soul stone or whatever is that like Leah's mom made her the vessel of Diablo and she re she rebirths Diablo into Leah who you've been like helping the whole time and she like ravages heaven or whatever right um so like this is th like this thing it's it, you know Illidan coming back and then Illidan being prophesized to be the child of light and shadow and killing the prime Naru instead of embracing that destiny, right? Like, I just feel like this always happens uh, in these in these Blizzard games. Like, it's like something about... We should do an episode. <laughs> no, we can't do an episode because I just did it all in, like, five minutes. But, um, I don't know. That's my... That's, th that's where I've been living <laughs> for the last two weeks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's I. I definitely get that. Uh, I feel like it might just be me. Like this is stuff that you, I. I was showing Rachel some of the cinematics, some of the the, the StarCraft cinematics, um, and like the very first one, which is for Wings of Liberty, is uh, Tychus Findlay getting outfitted in his marine armor, <coughs> which ended with like the tagline or whatever. Like it's about damn time. Uh, and that one's, like, pretty simple. But then the the teaser for the Heart of the Swarm is, like, basically just five minutes of incredibly high-fidelity, like, depiction of the Zerg kicking ass. And, like, just, you know, you're watching, like, an Ultralisk just stomps on a siege tank, right? And then the one for Legacy of the Void is, it's, like, three Zealots, two High Templar, and a Probe are on Iyer, right? And it's narrative from Artanis talking about how Iyer fell. And this is all, this is the climax of the first StarCraft, right? Like, Iyer was destroyed by the Zerg um, because it's where the Overmind uh, planted himself. And uh, and eventually the Overmind was killed by Tassadar, but, like, Iyer had to be abandoned because it was just overrun by, like, billions and billions of Zerg or whatever. And so these are, like, the first couple of... You know, the first couple of Protoss that show up on Iyer to sort to fight against the Zerg. And they do just, like, all of the cool things, right? Like, the High Templars fuse together and become an Archon and fight an Ultralisk. And they self-destruct themselves to kill this Ultralisk. And, um... Uh... And there's just, like, something that, that's, like... Appeals to my seven samurai brain with, with this shit, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I totally, I totally get that. That kind of. Did you play any of the? Did you play any of the campaigns? No, yeah. I had no interest. We just played. Um, yeah, we just played multiplayer. I also uh, like. I realized that I really just don't like RTSs, um, so like that's just like a me thing. Where it's like yeah. I like I, I don't like kind of the core gameplay loop. So it's uh, it's generally not for me. 
So this um, is an interesting thing, and it kind of ties into a little bit of what we like been talking about uh, when it comes to sort of like the RNG and strategy game sort of thing. Because we use StarCraft as an example of there is no RNG in that game, right? There's no critical hits. There's no nothing. But like there is, it is so complicated that it is functionally RNG in a lot of situations, right? Like you, nobody can do the calculations for each individual Marine firing at each individual target do you know what i mean and so you kind of have to like ballpark it's, certain of these things yeah yeah it's, it's but a the thing that i think is interesting about that is the game has begot has become become so sort of like good and specialized that it is like no longer kind of like comprehensible in a way um because APF, like, the, when when it comes to an RTS and needing, need like, tons and tons of APM in order to be good, and when you have people who are pushing very, very high APM, they're just doing things so quickly that it's kind of, like, hard to distill in the way that, like, <clears throat> you know, League of Legends can distill your perspective into one player, right? Or, like, one team fight. Right, um, because there's just like so much going up, uh, like going on across the map, and in, in a certain sense, I sort of think <clears throat> StarCraft may be like the most, if we talk about sort of like the lack of RNG and like complication or whatever being the um, the stuff that makes these strategy games competitive. StarCraft might be the most competitive esport out there because it is so complicated and it is so you know like on how how high your your focus and your attention and your apm can be um but it also like at a certain point just loses comprehensibility right uh when it gets into those sort of like upper echelons of uh right absolutely compared to you know whatever like hearthstone or like magic or like you know uh the civilizations kind of of the world that are just like you know equalized in a way it's funny because, like, on the last the last time uh, we talked about Battlegrounds, which I think was actually not on our podcast, it was on the other podcast um, where we were guests. Uh, where we were guests, I kind of talked about how I was kind of like coming around on Hearthstone Battlegrounds, which was its own auto battler, and that is true. Battlegrounds is a lot more fun than I gave it credit for. Once you sort of like figure out, but it is still like an RNG game where you win and lose because of RNG. And, like, there are times when you kind of, like, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat just because, like, you got, like, good rolls, essentially. And, you know, and that's, like, fun and exciting, but it's also not, like, I wouldn't call Battlegrounds or, like, TFT or any of these kinds of auto-battlers. Yeah, they're, they're not super competitive games, right? Like, they're they're exciting and they're engaging, but, like, they're not, you know, <clears throat> I don't know, like, incredibly deep tests of skill, I guess. Because I feel like so much of it does sort of, like, hang on... Uh, uh, the the whether or not the right targets are getting attacked, right, or like the wrong targets are getting attacked. It's funny because I've been, you know a lot of the YouTube uh, a lot of the Hearthstone YouTubers have been putting out Battlegrounds content, and Battlegrounds content is actually almost more engaging than like traditional Hearthstone content because of that sort of like random aspect because that you get into these situations where you're just like how does he win with this board and he wins because you know he gets a couple of good hits or something like that and it's like a nail biter but it's also like oh well yeah. you know he, he won what, a five out of seven roll 
and that he shouldn't have won, he probably should have like lost this. It makes it for compelling viewership. I think that's kind of part of the reason why like the battle royale games have some of that same stuff to it, right? Like, um, there's like, like either like something that's like pure skill, which is like kind of like what a lot of fighting games get into, which are kind of about reads and kind of like sometimes a little bit about chance, but like you know, like this is the functional RNG that you're talking about, right? Like that kind of. Um, first of all, that's short, right? Like the, the these other games can get a little bit longer, but like at a certain point, if there's no RNG, kind of the end is foreseen, right? Like you you can see this in like different games where someone will forfeit even though they're like not in a place to lose at that exact moment, right? Like you see this in chess, you see this sometimes in Magic even, even though that game is a little like has like more like draw kind of um, RNG to it, um, uh, like people scooping or whatever. And um, I think with like kind of like the StarCraft thing, right? Like you can, you kind of get to the point where you realize like the game is decided long before it actually like the last unit falls or whatever, if that makes sense. And uh, I think like these elements of randomness make them more compelling to watch, even if they make them technically less competitive, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this- that, that's something that was interesting. Like I talked about this a little bit when it came to the Hearthstone finals that was this year, right? Which was just... Ryan had the read on the Mena. She had much better decks, and she absolutely housed 3-0 Bloody Face, right? Which was, you know, it was great for the moment because she's a female gamer who faced a lot of adversity or whatever, and that's like an inspiring sort of like competitive narrative. But the games themselves were not like really competitive. She basically just, she won them on the the strength of her deck lists. Um, So... In a certain sense, she kind of won the tournament before the tournament ever took place. Whereas last year's final, which was... And I would recommend... I mean, like, it's hard to recommend this because people don't understand Hearthstone. But, like, I would recommend people go watch the Game 5 of last year's, the 2018 World Championship. Because it was so fucking hype, right? The guy... In, it was a it was a deck of Control Shaman versus Zoo Warlock, where the Zoo Warlock got a lot of damage in, and he got close to winning, but he didn't quite get there before the Shaman stabilized. And then once the Shaman stabilized, he was able to play a card that replaced his entire deck with random legendaries, right? And the idea is you include this card in your Zoo deck where it's kind of the Hail Mary button, right? you get the legendaries have a lot of value you just get a lot of random value hopefully you can put on enough pressure finish off like the opponent and it was really it was a really compelling thing to watch because he was getting these outs right like you were watching and he was pulling cards and just like oh my god i can't believe he pulled like the one card that would get him to to the other side of this or whatever and so like in one sense that's a lot less competitive because like if I can't even remember who was playing, I think it was Hunter Ace who was playing the Shaman and somebody was playing the zoo, right? Like if the zoo deck had won, that would have been a little bit like cheap in a way, right? Yeah. Like, because like, yeah, he just happened to pull Azalina soul thief and steal his, like, and steal a copy of all the cards in his opponent's big fat control hand. And now he's, you know, going kind of card for card with the control deck and he pulls it out or whatever. Um, and that didn't happen, right? Like, you know, Hunter Race as the Shaman should have won and did win, obviously. Uh, but, like, ad- that just made for a much more compelling uh, viewership than the the th- kind of three-match beatdown of Lion versus Bloody Face. Yeah, no, that, that that definitely makes a lot of sense. And kind of in that news, something I wanted to talk about briefly was um, on the other side of 
uh, card game esports. Um, bans came out for MTG today um, for standard and for uh, other formats as well. But um, uh, for, first of all, disclosure, I'm invested in Hasbro, right? So this change is actually very good for me because apparently nobody was playing standard because Oko was so oppressive. Oko, Oko Prince of Thieves, I think is the name of the card. Has Thief been of banned. Crowns? Thief of Crowns, maybe, yeah. Um, I mean, there's two Okos. The, the three mana one's been banned. Um, the one that turns everything into a 3-3 elk, um, along with Once Upon a Time and Veil vale of Summer. Three green cards, so like green is apparently like super powerful. Okay, so so I know Oko. What is Once Upon a Time? Once Upon a Time is uh, green, uh, colorless. Um, look at the top five cards of your deck. Pick a land or creature from it. Shuffle the rest into it. But if it's the first spell that you cast in the game, it costs zero, um, which is the like the really powerful part. Like, essentially lets you, like, essentially gives you a lot of power to to dig for cards and like really gives you makes you consistent and also like gives you a lot of um, yeah, so mana. You can, like, set your mana curve. Yeah, it's it's got like strong mana fixing effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I think like if green wasn't so ascendant or so powerful right now, it might have escaped a ban in another season, but, like, Oko being what it is, and Veil of Summer, which is a uh, core 2020 card, which is one green, um, uh, what is exactly is it? It's uh, creatures you control can't be... Oh, if a if a black or a blue spell has been cast this turn, draw a card. Um, uh, uh, creature or creatures you control can't be the target of blue or black spells this turn. Um... Which is apparently just really sh- like because it's because blue and black are are also kind of popular. It like makes green really resilient to other forms of removal, right? Like white can like exile things, but like green creatures tend to be big, so direct damage from red tends to be a little bit weaker against it. Whereas like the outright destroy effects and the return effects on blue and black are kind of nullified by this, especially for such a cheap cost. Um, and so I think, like I said, in different meta, those other two cards or those two cards wouldn't necessarily have been. Um, as, uh, as, as, uh, as, uh, as powerful, but, um, or, and might have escaped a ban. They were, they, they kind of need to go for the health of the game, especially Oko. Oko was just, like, so unfun to play against, right? Like, the big problem that it had was turning everything, like, tur- it could turn artifacts or creatures into 3-3 elks without any other abilities, which, um, just, like, made like, an unfun to play against, right? Like, especially if you're doing, like, a build-around deck, um, like, where you had kind of, like, a centerpiece, like, if that was an artifact or a creature, which they often were, like, it was just gone, and you couldn't do anything about it. Um, and it was, it, it, like, I had played against a couple of them, and there were ways to fight against it, right? Like, my favorite card, or one of my favorite cards, Shifting Share Tops, couldn't be targeted because it got protection from blue. Um, like, uh, this other card I play called Yorvo, Lord of Garenberg, lost its abilities, but like the way it worked, it was a zero zero with four plus one plus one counters on it, so it turned into a seven seven when it got elked, but like it still wasn't great. Um and you know, it's gone now. So uh the me- like apparently at the latest tournament, like eighty something percent of the decks were running Oko, and like like it was a variant called Civic Flash Oko. Um and like the other decks were like like barely over 50% against it. So it was, uh, it, it, it really needed to go, um, for the sake of, of the, of the meta, I guess. But, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely a neat card. 
Like I feel like if that if that ability was a minus one instead of a plus one, it would have been fine. But like it's just too strong. Um, yeah, and I've, you know that's and the weakness of magic is that you like you can't make those changes after the fact. You can't yeah. like pick pick a health off of Siege Rhino, right? Right. Yeah. Siege Rhino is just Siege Rhino. You can never make him a four four that he should have been, right? Um, you can't make uh, Oko's ability like a minus one. Um, I mean, I guess they they have done a little bit of like errata. We talked about this a bit, but you know, it's yeah. tough to like hard errata the like absolute text of a card right People yeah you're gonna see plus one and see plus one um yeah uh, errata is like the only like the one piece of errata i think was like a typo like a, a literal typo yeah, yeah, um, yeah they forgot to put until end of turn turn yeah um on an effect that would ab- would make absolutely no sense otherwise right um, yeah I mean it made sense otherwise right like it it would have been that way forever but it would have just been like too yeah, you can't track that, right? Like, which is yeah, the reason yeah. that a lot of those effects are until end of turn because it's easy to track something for a single turn. But like, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, that's really uh, that's really interesting, especially about the other two bands, right? Like Veil of Summer. I feel like actually, um, Veil of Summer is in a long history of cards that I've always thought are not great in Magic, uh, which are sort of the kind of like like anti color tech cards. Uh, the other yeah, one, the I've color hate cards. Is, yeah, so like guttural response, uh, which was counter target blue instant spell for one red one or and or like it was a RG, uh, one red or one green, like that was like an insanely powerful hate card, and I hate in like hate cards like that are really like shitty. I feel like to be honest, because like it just punishes you, you know, for like playing whatever like for playing whatever you're playing. Um, it doesn't kind of like make a like make an interesting or uh it it just yeah it just stops you from doing fun things this is the reason by the way when i was playing uh really hard with the onslaught era i swear i had a white blue control deck which was a, a pretty standard control deck at the time but i changed out the blue for green because i was playing against goblins um and uh, Goblin Pile Driver has protection from blue, and it's just like so powerful. He just like runs over you every single game, um, and stuff like that. I don't know. Like, I get it in a way, and like you would think that like guttural response target, you know, blue instant spell would be sort of focused enough, but it's just like it's so focused that it's uh, I don't know. It's just like unfun to yeah, unfun it, to play against it. It, it feels it, it it's weird because it's like. Especially in, like, a best-of-one scenario, right? Like, it's a thing that's supposed to target something. Like, it's a thing that you – like, you know, it's not useful against every deck. It's only useful against some decks, right? And, like, when it gets played against you in that kind of of best-of-one form, it's like, really? Like, you put this card in here just because you anticipated somebody running this type of card? Like, what the fuck? Right? It's not like – you know, like, the the general classes of cards, I think, are a little bit less like this, right? Like, destroy target creature. Most decks have creatures in them. In fact, very few don't, right? Like, um – like the chance of like not needing like specific type of hate um, is like specific class of card hate is is a little bit different than like specific color hate, um, but yeah, there's apparently there's a history of these cards and like the other the older ones have always kind of come in weak, but this one's just too like it's in this current meta right like the best tools for getting rid of green strength are in 
it's you know it's opponents on the color wheel and it just makes it too hard especially like like black's really good at this kind of thing like yeah uh getting rid yeah, of yeah i think there are good you know like there's definitely been good tech cards and bad tech cards you know like so hearthstone has had good and bad relationships with this right like kazan mystic was a really frustrating card to play against for a long time um it was it's like three mana four three which is like pretty good stats right uh like pretty competitive stats and it's take control of a random enemy secret and it essentially got printed because freeze mage was a thing you would play this sort of mage deck where you're just drawing lots and lots of cards um and you put ice block up ice block is a secret that when you get dealt fatal damage you, you kind of go immune if you draw through your whole deck and you get both ice blocks you essentially get two free turns of setup and what you do is you use alex straza to set the enemy hero to 15 and then you have an ice block they trigger the ice block you're immune your next turn you just blast them in the face for 15 damage with all of the burn spells that you've like drawn over the course of the game and so kazan mystic comes into play and it steals your ice block so like not only does it prevent you from like losing the game if your opponent has a lot of pressure on the board right like plenty of times they drop kazan mystic they steal your ice block hit you for lethal right but even if they don't have that lethal now all of a sudden you set them to 15 and you try and use your burn to like single them down and they have your ice block to survive your burn and it's just like a card like that is not it just it destroys your way uh it, it like destroys your win condition in like such a po- like pinprick targeted way that it's just like i don't know that i feel like blizzard got better at it you know like skulking geist was used in the jade era skulking geist removes all one mana spells from each player's deck and druid had a card that shuffled one mana copies of itself in its deck so they could go infinite and they could just outvalue you over time so if you ever got in that sort of a situation you could drop skulking geist and nuke their deck get rid of all the one mana cards in it um but the thing is is like first of all it's a symmetrical effect you are also nuking your own one mana cards your your own sort of like one mana spells um and uh uh, the body itself was kind of like a little bit cumbersome, right? Like it's a five mana card. You have to really like commit to this sort of thing. It's not something you can kind of like tempo out in a way. So I don't know. I think I think uh, the the what makes a good tech card and what makes a bad tech card are kind of like tough things to uh, to iron out. But I've always sort of felt like those uh, those really kind of like gut punchy color hate cards are not great. Yeah, yeah. I think I agree with you. But I think that's all we have time for today. Um, if you'd like to email us what you think about the ban of Oko, Thief of Crowns, or uh, the Outer Worlds, or any other things we talked about on the show, you can email us at some derps, talk, the, some at gmail.com or podcast at somedurpsplaygames.com. You can follow us at uh, uh, twitch.tv slash somedurpsplaygames. You can give to us on Patreon. Uh, you can... Uh, follow us on all sorts of various social media check the description for it uh, read and review us on on your podcast service um i think it's everything i had buddy do you have anything else you want to promote i have nothing else i'm looking to promote in that case until next time dear listeners until next time loyal listeners <laughs>